All right, good morning, everyone. So, I am, um, one of my hobbies is history, I love history, I read historical novels, I love historical novels, so I'm not a great person just reading novels that people make up, for me I need a little bit more grounded in reality, so I love reading historical novels, I love watching historical movies, historical series, historical, yeah, anything that has, I love, and I think maybe it's because I love stories, um, but if they're science fiction I don't. So when when I started looking into into acts, yes. you know, you've just destroyed the sci-fi guys. Uh, sorry. No, each their own. You know, we know that much of the much of the, the technology that we have today is because of the guys in the sci-fi world, right? They dream up the stuff, and then the scientists go and figure out how to do it. So I, all power to them. I just I just love history. And so looking into the books of acts, I decided I need to go a little bit more into the history of what's actually going on here. So I'm gonna sort of come from that angle. I'm gonna go on a sort of a bit of a meander um, into, into the history of, of Acts. And I'm also gonna look back at just where we've come from up until now, because we're literally halfway, Acts 14 is where I'm more or less, halfway until Acts 8. So it's probably a good place to look back and then, and, and, and what happens in this section of scripture is Paul really sets the tone for the rest of what's going to happen in Acts, and, and indeed the New Testament. So it's a very important juncture um, that we are. I spend most of my week in something called uh, the BEMA podcast, B-E-M-A. If you really want to get into scripture and the historical contextual side of it and how it's, it's a very, very powerful podcast. They've got about five or six seasons that literally start at the beginning of the Bible and uh, they move right through to the end. And it's still going on. I don't know where they are at this point, other than season or session six or whatever. So I spend a lot of my time there. There's a guy who's a professor of theology, another guy who they just basically have a conversation. Um, and I've picked a lot of the stuff out uh, from what they've had to say. Okay, so our starting point this morning is actually decades before Jesus and probably about 90 years before the first Gospels are written. And it's Julius Caesar is the emperor of Rome. And his problem is he... He hasn't got a son to take over from him as the emperor. So he adopts his nephew, Octavian, who then makes, who then becomes the legal heir to the, the throne of Rome as the emperor of Rome. But at that particular time, there's another person who makes more sense to, to be on the throne of Rome, and that's a guy called Mark Anthony. I mean, you may have heard of him in movies and books and stuff. And he was this great Roman warrior. He was an incredibly uh, good politician. And... He wasn't liked. Actually, people loved Octavian, and they wanted him to be the emperor. But the senators at that particular time had no way of how we're going to get this guy onto the throne as the next emperor if if everybody uh, if uh, Mark Anthony makes more sense. And so Caesar's assassinated, and the senators are now wondering how we're going to move on next. Now Octavian, although he was young and inexperienced, he was politically brilliant. And at that particular time, you were like this, a comet, a couple of days afterwards, went across the sky. Everybody saw it. And what Octavian did is he stood up and he publicly proclaimed that this was Julius Caesar ascending to heaven as God. And therefore, Octavian is the son of God. And at that particular point, the senators realized they had the opportunity and they inaugurated Octavian as the son of God, as the emperor of Rome. And he became Augustus Caesar. 
Interesting. Mm. And so when we come to the Gospels and to Acts, things like the Son of God, Prince of Peace, are all very much part of the lexicon of the day. These are political phrases that have been there for a hundred years. And so when Luke and Matthew and Mark start talking about the Son of God, people know exactly the milieu in which they are finding themselves. And what they're doing, though, is they're subverting and reusing these ideas to introduce the king and the kingdom of God. And so what we have is this kingdom of God that has been ushered in during the spread of the emperor, the spread of the empire of Rome. Now what happened at that particular time is the senators realized they had an opportunity because if Caesar was God and Octavian was the son of God, they as senators also claimed that they were witnesses to the ascension of Caesar. And Caesar had told them to be ambassadors for the what? For the spread of the Roman Empire. And so when in Acts 1 we see Jesus before his ascension saying, be my witnesses throughout the earth, they are again calling on and juxtaposing the senators who claim to have heard Julius Caesar telling them to do the exact same thing, to extend the Roman Empire. Guess how many senators were on the Senate at the time of the ascension of Julius Caesar? There were 12. There were 12 senators. On the Mount of Olives, when Jesus was about to ascend, there were 11 because Judas had been killed. In the very next passage, they bring on a 12th disciple, Matthias. So can you see what's happening here? How this milieu of 100 years is being brought front and center into the story of Jesus and the early church. And so what we actually have is a clash of two kingdoms, the clash of two stories, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of empire. It's the rule, reign, and shalom of God. And shalom meaning peace. And you've heard a saying called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So it's the peace of God versus the peace of Rome. The ambassadors have been mandated by Julius to spread the Pax Romana. And what does Jesus come to? He says to the 12 disciples on a hill, you have been mandated to, spend, to, to spread the rule, reign, and peace of God. And the key factor of empire that you have to get is that it opposes and persecutes any threat to the status quo. It opposes anyone who tries to take away power, position, and privilege. And this is what you're going to start to see. And Brandon also referenced this when he spoke about empire. And as you start to go through Acts, you start to see how the apostles stand against empire, stand against power, position, and privilege. And this pattern of kingdom confronting uh, kingdom confronting empire ramps up through Acts and as does the persecution. So in Acts 2 we see the coming of the Holy Spirit and the sharing of, of the, all they have amongst the believers. Kingdom is coming. And then we see the healing in, in, in Acts 3 of the lame beggar at the gate beautiful. Kingdom is coming. And then they're threatened by the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin say, stop what you're doing. That's the beginning of the persecution. Then we go into Acts 5. What happens? Many more people are healed. And what happens? The Sadducees persecute them again. And this time they flog them. The persecution is ramping up. In Acts 6, Stephen performs many signs and wonders. Acts 7, Stephen is stoned to death. 
and Acts 8, Paul leads the persecution and the scattering of the church. Kingdom against empire. The spread of the kingdom opposing the power, position, and privilege of empire. So here we are in, in Acts 8. We start to see the implications of this coming of the king and the kingdom. We see Philip and Samaria. Samaritans are outsiders. They are seen as half-breeds. They, they defile the true religion, but healing and deliverance takes place. Kingdom is coming to the outsiders, to those who are not seen as being part of the establishment of the religious order of the day. And then Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch. He's on the way back from Jerusalem where he's been worshipping the God of Israel. He's the treasurer of the queen of Ethiopia. And he's reading Isaiah 53, which is the suffering servant, which is often seen as the foreshadowing of Jesus' suffering. As a eunuch, he would have been excluded from the assembly, from the inner circle of the worshipping at the synagogue. He would have been sitting in the outer courts with the Gentiles. Why? Because in Deuteronomy 23.1, it specifically excludes those with damaged or altered genitalia from entering the assembly of worship. And so in Acts 8.24, the eunuch asks Philip, he says, who is the prophet talking about when he's referring to the suffering? Now you must understand that this passage in Isaiah 53 is not primarily about Jesus. The, 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 the application of Jesus is a secondary application. That's not what the historical readers would have heard at that particular time when Isaiah was preaching. It's about God's people. It's about they are the suffering servants. They are the ones that are exhorted to suffer for the law. And that is their obedience. That is what the people who heard Isaiah for the first time would have understood. They would not have seen it as a foreshadowing, as a secondary application as we now see it in a prophetic way. So the question that the eunuch is asking is about himself. He says, does this exhortation to be a suffering servant belong only to the people of God, in other words, the Jews, or does it even apply to an outsider like me? Am I also included in this text? And Philip explains that in Jesus, the good news is for all people. Now what's very interesting is that if you page a few chapters forward to Isaiah 56, it says this. I think I've got it up here somewhere. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple, outside to in, and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. Who's it referring to? The Jewish people. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So while he may be excluded from the temple worship, he's not excluded from the kingdom and community of God. And as if to seal the deal, Philip baptizes him. Bring him into the kingdom. In Act 10, Peter encounters the centurion Cornelius, who's a Gentile. And Peter himself says that the Jewish law forbids him to be in the presence of Gentiles. And in a vision that God brings to Peter, God says this, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And then Peter himself says in verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation. The outsiders 
through the grace of God, are becoming the insiders. The outsiders, who were made outside by the religion, the religious empire, the Roman empire, are now being brought in through Christ. And so this is where we find ourselves in Acts 13 uh, and 14. Paul's first missionary journey. I'm going to read from Acts 13 verse 13. I've got it up here as well, I think. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, brothers because they are Jewish, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles, who worship God, listen to me. So Paul's first missionary journey, I'm going to bring up a map here. He was going west to Cyprus. And then for some obscure reason, he heads north to Perga. Now what makes it really obscure is that it was a week's hike from Perga to Pisidian Antioch. There was no road leading to that place. It was a wilderness. So the question becomes, why did Paul, who was going west, suddenly head north for a week's hike to a city that was very, very small and in an extreme wilderness? So here's some of the history. Pisidian Antioch was one of many Antiochs that Rome had planted. There were 14 in all that they had set up in Asia Minor. And the purpose of these Antiochs was to amplify Rome. They were actually miniature Roman cities. And what the Romans did with this bunch of people that were in this wilderness is they didn't want to try and fight them because they were impossible to fight because they didn't have an army, didn't have a king, and they were barbaric. They were terrified. And rather than expend all their energy in trying to conquer them, they made treaties with them. And said, hey, we will come and we'll build your cities. And, and, you know, and they wanted to spread, at that particular time, Hellenism. Like Hellenism was a Greco-Roman culture and worldview. And so they set up all these institutions that you would find in Rome. What was interesting about Pisidian Antioch, it was literally a miniature Rome. Because it also had seven miniature hills. Now Rome is built on seven hills. The city of Antioch had seven miniature hills. And when they did an archaeological dig there, they found multiple references for a guy called Sergius Paulus. Heard of him? He was Paul's first convert in chapter 13. Paul met him at Cyprus. So what's he doing here? This is his hometown. He built the gate. The city of Antioch apparently is... There's still archaeological remnants of this gate at Pisidian Antioch. So it's possible that part of the reason Paul did this northern trip is what? He wanted to get before whom? The Caesar at Rome. Why? Because he represents empire. He represents the Pax Romana. He represents the worldview. Who else? But to come before, to bring the king and the kingdom and the shalom of God, but Rome itself, Caesar itself. Now we see that throughout the, the book of Acts when you start to see. Paul's trying to get to Rome all the time. Every time he tries to go, you'll see God says, no, 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 it's not time yet. And he pushes him here and he pushes him there. But that was Paul's goal. Confront empire. 
with the king and the kingdom of God. So what happens at Pisidian Antioch? Paul's method, Paul's preaching, actually sets the contours of the New Testament. It sets the framework within which the New Testament starts to happen. In the text, what we find is that Paul finds the synagogue where all his Jewish brothers are, and they ask him to share a word. Now, when you, as a visitor, went to the synagogue, you were asked to share a word. But Paul was even more special because he had been schooled by the Rabbi Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was a heavyweight in those days. Right? It's probably like Terran and our days, I suppose. <laughs> and the rabbinical climate of Asia Minor was an interesting place because decades before, again in history, decades before Jesus, at the same time, that this battle was happening in Rome between Caesar and Octavian Mordecai, they were trying to figure out what to do with the Gentiles who loved the God of Israel and wanted to worship in the synagogue. At that particular time, there were about 20% of the people, the population in that um, area, were, were, Jewish, were Jewish people. And there were two views as to how to deal with the Gentiles. The one was through a rabbi called Shemai. And he said, well, the way they must do is they must convert to Judaism and they must be circumcised. That's how they will convert. The, the, the rabbi Hillel said, no, 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 Gentiles are, are welcome to worship because they can be justified by faith in the same way Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham was justified by faith by God before he was circumcised. So he was accepted by God, not by his circumcision, but by his faith. And so Hillel said, you can do that. Shemai said, no, you've got to be circumcised. And so... What we have is this idea that the kingdom of God is coming, and now who's in and who's out? Are the brothers in? Oh, are the Gentiles in? And he's actually addressing three people, three groups of people at this particular time. And what's interesting is that the, the, the NIV doesn't actually represent the three groups properly. Okay, so in verse 26... You can go and read it there, but you won't find it in your NIV. You've got to go look at the New American Standard Version. The New American Standard Version is actually a very good version because it actually is the closest, the, 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 the best translation of the Greek into English. And this is what it says. In verse 26, it says, brothers. So brothers is referring to the Jews themselves. Now, Paul's addressing these three people in his sermon. Brothers. Then he says, sons of Abraham's family. Those are the children of Abraham, okay, who have been circumcised and are following the law. In other words, they're doing what the... Rabbi Hillel said they must do. I mean, Shammai said they must do. And in the third place, is he talks about the God, uh, they call about the those among you who fear God. They were the God-fearing Gentiles in the Greek. They called this theosaves. The theosaves. The question is, what do you do with these people that are not part of the brethren? So we pick up um, in verse 17, which I'm not going to do. Verse 17 to 41. Paul now takes this congregation a long and narrative history of Judaism, it's called Jewish history. And he's trying to use this history to make the point, which I'm going to get to at the end, but he doesn't sugarcoat the history. He's very, very confrontational in what he does. So he basically says, you Jews were stubborn people when God led you out of, the, out of Egypt, and then he had to endure your conduct in the wilderness while you fapped around for 40 years. And then he sums up that history with the coming of the judges. Remember, the Israelites wanted a king. And the first king was Saul, and he was a debacle. And the frustration that they had with Saul. And then we see the pinnacle of Jewish history in David, a man after God's own heart. 
And then what Paul does is he connects David to the lineage of Jesus. And he talks about the fact that both John the Baptist and Jesus are anointed and that Jesus is the Messiah. So he goes right back from history to, uh, to, to when they um, come out of exile, um, come out of Egypt, sorry, and right through to the present where Jesus is now um, Messiah. And then he speaks of this idea that the, the Judeans, who were the Judeus, Jewish leadership, not only the Jews, but the Judeans did not recognize Jesus. And they made the foolish mistake of putting him to death. And then he sums it up in the, in the resurrection of Christ and the bringing of this kingdom. And he ends the sermon with a direct and challenging application, which we can pick up now in verse 38. He says this, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, whoever believes is set free from sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses, in other words, through circumcision. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Here comes the warning. In other words, take care not to reject the kingdom. Take care not to reject what the kingdom means. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Habakkuk 1.5, that's what he's quoting. So the job of the Jewish people, the job of the Jewish people has always been to what? To bless all nations, to carry on this ministry of forgiveness of sin that God offers. It's always been the job of the Jewish people. And he says, if they miss that calling, they will be the same as the foolish scoffers spoken about in the Old Testament. So, how do the Jewish people now respond to basically getting a tongue lashing about their ineptness as a, as a nation through history, about their rejection of Jesus? How do they respond? Well, let's read verse 44. Uh, verse 42, sorry. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people, did what? Invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. He's just lashed them. When the congregation was dismissed, now they're all going home, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. Do they do what normally happens when the preacher finishes preaching and our churches come and tell him why he's wrong? No, no, no. They do that. Who talk with them and urge them to continue in the grace of God. What's going on? They welcomed it. They welcomed the message. They asked him to come back on the next Sabbath. All three groups, the brothers, the children of Abraham, and the God-fearing Gentiles, all said, come back next week. You see, the Jewish people did not have a problem with, the, with Jesus and the gospel. They understood that Jesus was the next person in the plan of God to bring about kingdom and kingdom. It was the rulers the religious rulers, the leaders that had the problem. Why? Because their position, power, and privilege was going to be undermined by a kingdom that said, come in, do not exclude it. So what do the Jews then get upset about? We pick up the story in verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were what? Filled with joy? With happiness? No. With jealousy. Now what do they start to do? 
they began to contradict what Paul was saying, and he abused him. Hello, weren't you just saying a week ago, come back, we love this message, we love Jesus? Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly again. They're not afraid to confront. We had to speak the word of God to you first, the Jews. Since you reject it, not reject Jesus, reject your mandate to bless nations. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we will now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation where? To the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Back on the outsiders, flooding in. So the whole city, 8,000 people, rocked up to the synagogue. So here's my question. How would you feel if this whole area, Crawford, Kenya, Rambashis, Hanover Park, Gatesville, all those outsiders rocked up to Wellspring next Sunday. They were piled out here into the gardens, looking in. The speakers had to go outside. There were 17 people in the toilet at once. There was not enough coffee. People were running for the few wonderful eats that we have. Would we respond differently? Are we arrogant enough to say, whoa, we would accept all these people. Would we act the same as Jewish people? Because we very easily judge them of the history, right? We, oh, we would be much better at history. We would be much better at these people. Unlikely. There's the challenge to us. What happened if thousands of people rocked up here next Sunday? Shane? <laughs> so what's changed? What had changed in this case? The message? No, the message hadn't changed. Who had changed? The audience. The people who were demanding and wanted to come in. That is what had changed. And Paul responded by saying, because the Jews do not want to bring the message of God's kingdom, he's going to bypass them. And Paul himself will bring that message. And the story continues in the next chapter. Iconium, Lystra, Derby does exactly the same thing. Same method. And the Jewish leaders reject them and push them out. Expel them. In Iconium, there was a plot to stone them. They found out about the plot and they got out of there with him. In Lystra and Derby, they were actually stoned and therefore dead. But they weren't dead. That is what happens when kingdom of God comes up against empire. Is that people start persecuting. Opposition rises. It was difficult for this group of religious worshippers to accept the fact that all may be allowed into the family of God. This is the great backdrop to the New Testament. The gospel brings those on the outside inside. In Galatians, Paul says, if you let yourself be circumcised, in other words, if you see circumcision as the way in, the resurrection is nothing. It means nothing to you. Because what you've done is you've set up a line that people have to transgress that has nothing to do with the grace that comes to the Christ. In Ephesians, he says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but citizens and fellow members of what? God's household. What has happened is we've exchanged this good news message that all 
to come into the kingdom. So a message of, we need to get as many people into heaven because this whole place is doomed to destruction. The earth is doomed to destruction and many will end up in hell. And that is our job, the saving of souls. Whereas the message of God has always been redeeming this world and creating a new heaven and a new earth. About creating a community, a priesthood of all believers who confront the world, the empire, the religious, showing them that God is for the outsider. Unfortunately, little has changed in the 2000 years. There are still groups of people and entire institutions that claim to speak for God and are certain they have figured out who gets in and who gets out. They believe, contrary to the teachings of Jesus, they have stumbled upon the guest list of the great wedding banquet and they know who has been invited and who has been left out. Until our church is full of people who don't look like us, think like us, live like us, dress like us, we cannot talk about the gospel and the kingdom being for all people. Unless we confront empire, whether that be religious or economic systems that exclude people and keep them on the outside, we must then hear Paul's warning. And I read this from the NASAB. Look, you scoffers, and be astonished and perish. Why? For I am accomplishing a work in your days. A work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. He is going to do this whether we come with him or not. And we will be astonished by what he is wanting to do with his kingdom. When we had this worship earlier and, and we heard this amazing praying, I suddenly had this urge to go back to Isaiah. And I want to show you what I found. And I've never seen this before. And remember, I've got two theology, theological degrees. <laughs> Just so you get a bit of context. Isaiah 53 is what we spoke about, the eunuch. Talking about, am I in? Even though I am a eunuch, am I in? <laughs> Philip goes, yeah, you're damn right, you're in. And then look what happens in Isaiah 54. Listen to this. Sing, barren woman, an outsider. You who have never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy. You who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. And then what does it go on to say? Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle where? In their desolate cities. We are in a desolate city. Isn't that amazing? And then what happens? I go to Isaiah 55 and verse 1. And guess what it says? Can anyone tell me what it says in 55 verse 1? No, it says this. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Be outsiders. Come, this is our freaking church. Right, Jan, Isaiah 55, I've never seen that. And I just had this inkling, go and look. Isaiah 56, where the eunuch reads from, where, the, where, the, where God says, you as the eunuch are welcome. You know what the heading is? 
Salvation falls out for the insiders. And verse 8, it says this. The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, the people, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. He will gather others that are not sitting here to those who are already gathered. Let this description be the description of Waltham Community Church where he says, I have appointed you as a light that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. To all those who are outside. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, I, I am just, um, I'm gobsmacked by the implications and the ramifications of this kingdom that stands in stark contrast to empire that seeks, that seeks to exclude you. Lord, we've got many, many challenges ahead of us as a church as we stand in a community where there are many who consider outside. And, and even in our own hearts, we consider them outside because of the way they live or the way they dress or the choices they make in their lives. And we have, we have got a, a path to walk in these next coming months and years as you challenge us as to who we keep outside, in our hearts or in our church. And Lord, we desperately need, as we saw your spirit move this morning, we desperately need your spirit to move in our hearts and in our church as we boldly become light to this community, as we boldly include, as we go further and are astonished by what you do as we do so. Keep us away, Lord, from being bypassed by you as the Jews we're bypassed by Paul. We do not want to be bypassed by you, Lord. We want to be used by you to bring your kingdom and to be that, that beacon on a hill that says this is where you can come if you are on the outside. Give us the boldness, the courage, the wisdom, the love to be that, that people. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.